look it up on your phone or whatever it is that you look at. Um, I mentioned a few times that uh, this morning we're looking at uh, beginnings. Now, it's kind of not just because of where we're at as a church, although that's part of the reason, and not just because we've had lots of babies born. I feel a little sort of identity with this whole thing of beginning again. I, I don't know if you've been keeping up with what's happening in our house, but... Lynn and I had our 50th wedding anniversary. Well, we've got it next week, actually. And uh, I don't know if you're like me, but... I, oh, well, thank you, yeah. When I was young, I used to sort of feel sorry for people who'd been married 50 years. I thought, wow, you know, poor things, what's left in life? And that's me. <laughs> and then to make it worse, I turned 70 next Saturday. Can you believe that? Like, it's not even a number you want to talk about, really. And even worse than that, I'm starting to get these odd emails. Did did you get them, those of you who are a bit older than me? They're offering me a free eyesight check. (laughs) And another one came this week, a free hearing check. And another one that said, if I want to keep my motorbike licence, I've got to go to the doctor and he's got to certify that I'm still able to stand up. What's going on? See, clearly, I'm entering a new world, (laughs) the twilight zone. (laughs) But then I started to think, you don't have to be 70 to begin again. I was driving along yesterday and a song came on, I Dreamed a Dream by Susan Boyle. What does that bring back a memory of? No memory, see, you've lost your memory, that's your problem. <laughs> well, it goes back to 2009 when she made this song popular. Well, it was popular with Les Mis, of course, but it, it sort of burst onto the, the international stage when she appeared on Britain's Got Talent in April 2009 and she sang that song that blew everybody away, didn't it? They just could not believe that this middle-aged lady could sing like that. And she sang, I dreamed a dream and we all went with her and it was beautiful. And yesterday when I'm driving along, I got to the last line. And you know what the last line says? The last line says, I dreamed a dream. But the last line says, and life has killed the dream that I dreamed. It's an unwelcome ending, isn't it? I much prefer the opening couple of lines. How dare that song be real? How dare it actually say a lot of the dreams we have, somehow life kills them. You know, we tried hard and failed. We hoped and lost. We prayed and it seemed like our prayers went cold. We, we loved and love got betrayed. We dreamed of great big things and somehow life killed the dreams. Well, let's take some heart because in Exodus 3, that's exactly where we find Moses. Forty years before that, God gave him a dream to be a leader who would lead the Israelites out of captivity into the promised land. That's not a bad dream. 
The only trouble is Moses didn't quite get it and he went about it the wrong way and he killed an Egyptian and then he ran into the Midian desert and 40 years later, life has killed the dream that he dreamed. What's he doing? Well, Exodus 3 says he's on the far side of the Midian desert. He's not just in the desert. (laughs) 40 years of running around after sheep instead of leading God's people into the promised land. Well, that gives me hope. One, because God gave him a chance to begin again. And secondly, because Moses was 80 at this stage, so I'm doing okay at 70. Okay, what does God do to a Moses, this man who's now living in a crusty old desert, and the past dream is just that? It's past. Well, if you've got your pen or if you can remember, I want you to remember that God asked him to do two things. Okay? Have a look in Exodus chapter 3. Moses saw a burning bush and he says, I'm going to go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. And when the Lord saw that he'd gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses. Moses, I have to tell you, I love that. Moses probably didn't go give it a second thought about what God called him to do, but God had never forgotten Moses, and he says it twice. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you're standing is holy ground, And then he said, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And at this Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look. The first thing that God said to Moses was, take off your sandals. Man, everything in me wanted to say to you this morning, before we go any further, kick off your shoes. Steph's already done it. He always comes in. He doesn't have any shoes. (laughs) Lives in a perpetual state of holiness. Hello, Laura, you're with me. Man, we're going to go somewhere. No, that's it. Well, that's great. You know, immediately we think about this, we think, well, God is saying, take off your shoes because this is holy ground. Do you know, my little mind sees something just a little bit more than that. As important as it is, to realise that we come before a holy God and he wants us to revere him and worship him, I think what God is saying to Moses is, Moses, take off your sandals and be vulnerable before me. I'm going to ask you to go to Egypt and deliver my people and yet I want you to stand here like a barefooted warrior, not all dressed up in your armour. I don't want you to go off like some megachurch pastor who looks like he's got everything under control. I want you to go as somebody who knows what it is like to stand barefooted and vulnerable in the presence of God. I think vulnerability lies at the heart of worship. My generation developed a very strong theology of strength. Power. 
I get on the internet all the time. I love listening to other people preach. Most of the time they're preaching about power and victory and success and overcoming and, and all of that. We've developed this amazing sense of the power of God and we talk very little about our vulnerability. You know, John MacArthur once said, Jesus did not die on a cross so that we could have a nice day. I love that. There's a couple of experiences in my life that I think have helped shape me. One was when I was in the Philippines a number of years ago and I was asked to preach at a very small church. And I'll never forget it because the man stood up the front and he said, I want to tell you today, we have a very famous international preacher here this morning. And I'm sitting there and I'm looking around. I thought, I wonder where he is. (laughs) And he just said, we are so privileged to have him. That man had just led the service from a piano if you could call it that, half the keys were missing. And as I sat there during the service, I was moved to see Jesus. I can't explain it. And so when they introduced me as this famous international preacher, what they didn't know was, as I stood up, all I wanted to do was to be like that man and somehow lead these people to Jesus. Do you get my point? Another time I was in Tukrajar in Assam in North India. I remember applying for a visa to go there and initially the Indian government refused. They said it's too dangerous. We can't guarantee your safety with all the tribal fighting that's going on. So I thought I'd do what I should do and I rang my mum to ask her to pray about it. And she said, I've got a better option. Just don't go. I thought, that's my dear old mum. I don't know whether she prayed or not, but I got the visa and I went. And word again got around that this special pastor had come amongst them. Folks, you've got to understand something. I was raised in the country, as you know, little boy from Wallaroo. Wallaroo doesn't even begin to describe Tukrajar. I have never seen poverty in my entire life like I saw there. I've never seen need. I've never seen humility. I've never been amongst people that I just... I couldn't figure out how they survived a day. And they were talking about me being this special pastor from Australia... I was told that people would walk three or four days just to come to hear me speak. Really? How far did you walk this morning? (laughs) Three or four days to be there to hear something from this man from Australia. And so I went to the doctor who I'd got to know pretty well and I said to him, Dipper, I said, what am I going to preach on? Would you know what he said to me? He said, preach on faith. I said, I can't. He said, what do you mean you can't preach on faith? I said, Dipper, these people have nothing and I have everything. These people are 
poor beyond belief and I am rich beyond belief. These people live with poverty and hardship and suffering and disease and unexpected. I'm going to get on a great big jumbo jet and go back to Australia and not seriously have any of those things in my life. And you want me to talk to them about faith? I can't do it. And I went home that night and funnily enough I read Exodus chapter 3 where God says to Moses, Moses, take off your shoes. Stand there barefooted and trust me. And so that day I spoke to those 2,000 people without a microphone, believe it or not, and you'll understand every one of them heard me. And I spoke on barefooted faith, vulnerable faith. Because, folks, if our faith can't take us back to places like this, it's not worth having. If faith is all around being a famous international preacher, he's not worth listening to. We need somebody who can explain to us a barefooted faith that says, God, you are going to be with me there in Tukrajar. You're going to be with me there in the Philippines. You're going to be with me when I've had a brand new baby. You're going to be with me when everything's going wrong and it doesn't seem like it's ever going to go right. You know, I don't like being vulnerable, do you? See, you're not even prepared to own up. <laughs> look, we're all the same. You and I will make ourselves look better, sound better, appear better than we are because we don't like to be vulnerable. What if people really knew what we were like? It's one of the things I've struggled for 40 years as being a pastor or a preacher. How much do you let people know from the pulpit? You know, you can sound so all together. We're not all together. I, I saw a book on a shelf a few years back that was titled Things I Learned Since I Knew It All. <laughs> I love that. You know, one of the things this guy talked about is that he discovered working in churches that there's this subtlety of being a Christian that we're also a winner. We're a winner. Maybe it goes back to the 80s, those self-indulgent days that some of us lived through where even the church, we went from being sinners to winners. You know, there was something about the church growth movement and something about the prosperity movement that we latched onto and it all became about being winners. Well, it turns out this particular pastor who wrote the book had enjoyed 25 years of ministry and then he had a breakdown. And I'm talking a serious breakdown. And he spent eight months as it turned out, in a retreat in the mountains trying to find out what happened. And he writes in the book, he said, through that eight months, he said, God kept bringing back to my mind this young man called Alex. This young man was so severely disabled, he couldn't control the movement of his arms and legs, he couldn't speak properly, but he had a wonderful sense of humour. And I quote to you what this writer says, he said, Alex was not and never would be a winner. He would never own more than he could stuff in a paper bag. Win? Alex couldn't even compete. 
Why should Alex be less useful in the kingdom because he can't do what I can do? Why do I have to prove that I'm a somebody by listing my triumphs? It's all so seductive. Man, that moves me. Can you hear what God's saying to Moses? Moses, take off your sandals, man, and stand before me barefooted. Because I don't want you to be a great leader. I want you to be a humble servant. Like most of us, we can hear what God says. Have a look what we read in verse 11. But Moses said, who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt. And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it's I who have sent you. When you brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Can you hear what Moses is saying? Lord, uh, I get this, but you need somebody else. You, you need one of those mega church pastors. I'm, I'm just an old shepherd. Well, Here's where God tells Moses to do the second thing. What was the first thing? Take your sandals off. Take your shoes off. Barefooted. Second thing God says, and the last thing we've got this morning in chapter 4, Moses says, what if they do not believe me or listen to, him, or listen to me and say the Lord did not appear to you? And then the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? A staff, he replied, and the Lord said, throw it on the ground. Man. Throw it down. You hear what God says to Moses? Throw down your staff. Folks, this is the one thing that identified Moses and had identified him for the last 40 years because every shepherd had a staff. You didn't go out every day without your staff. And God says, Moses, this one thing I want you to do is throw it down. Because it symbolised who he was. Moses knew it was a symbol of all he could have been. It was also a symbol of the fact that he was marked by failure. Throw it down. I want to try and draw this to a conclusion because when Lynn and I visited this very place in it's, we know it as Mount Sinai. At the bottom of Mount Sinai is St Catherine's Monastery. And as you go into the monastery, if you look down the end by the back wall, you'll see the burning bush. <laughs> you'll find in the Middle East that everywhere you go, people will tell you this is the real thing. It wasn't burning, but they are certain this was the burning bush. Now, I'm not interested whether that was the real bush or not, but I do remember standing there before that bush thinking, Lord, what have I lost sight of? What passion has waned from when I began to where I am now? Where have I tried and failed and not tried again? Where have I prayed and my prayers went to ice and I gave up on that? How is life with its disappointments and unanswered questions and its tragedies and mysteries driven me to the far side of the desert? Why have I settled for a staff? 
when God says throw it down. And then he says pick it up. Because from now onwards that staff will be a symbol not of who you are but who I am. Not of what you can't do but what I can do. I want to finish by telling you one of my favourite men in the, in the Bible. You may not have even come across him. His name's Ehud. Anybody know him? Don't be embarrassed. Good, that's why we gave you the job. <laughs> Ehud. He's one of the judges in the Old Testament. Interesting enough, he's a left-handed man, the Bible says. Yeah, a few lefties. I thought we'll just gradually get you in so you'll never forget this man, Ehud. But what... The Bible doesn't say he was a left-handed man, although that's what it means. The Bible tells us he was hindered in his right hand. Isn't that interesting? That's the way they constructed their sentences. Ehud was hindered in his right hand. So this was a man with limitations, with a disability that could have rendered him incapable of doing so many things. Ehud could have grabbed his staff and gone out into the desert and said, well, I could be a good shepherd. In fact, it was made even worse because Chronicles tells us that all the warriors from the tribe of Benjamin were known by the fact that they could throw a spear in both hands. They were ambidextrous. So here's Ehud from the tribe of Benjamin. He's hindered in his right hand, which was probably his main hand. And he says to God, if my right hand won't work, you've got my left Isn't that terrific? If this won't work, you've got your left. I'm not going to pick up that staff and hive off into the desert. I'm going to stay in the battle and I'm going to give you my left hand. I think that's at the heart of beginning again. And I often wonder, not only of you but of me, what hinders me from beginning again? I mean, we haven't run to the far side of the desert, but what are the places that we don't go anymore? What are the hopes that we don't harbour anymore or the prayers that we don't pray anymore? Well, very simply, God says, take off your sandals. want barefooted, vulnerable warriors, the Alexes of this world... We're not competing, we're not winners, we're there and God says, you were never that great person you thought you were. Uh, I want you to be a barefooted warrior. And see that staff? Don't be identified by what other people think you are, be identified by what I can do through you. I got to the end of this message and I thought, all of a sudden 70 doesn't seem so bad because somebody said that. (laughs) Yeah. Here's the thing to finish with. What day did that happen to Moses? The Bible just says one day. You never know what day is going to be that day. But all I do know is that when God is there, he gives us a chance to begin again.
Let's pray. Father, what, a, what an incredible story with Moses. This man had given up ever dreaming that something could happen again. He was resigned to the fact that he'd live out his days on the backside of the desert and one day you took him back to Egypt. You took him to Pharaoh. You took him back to his people and he led them out of Egypt. Father, we stand here today with so many beginnings and we're so grateful for that. Give us the courage to begin. But Father, sometimes even scarier is to begin again. To go back to that place where we don't want to go. To go back to that place that's dry and barren and hurtful and say, I want you to begin again there. So we're grateful for your word this morning. We're grateful for your Holy Spirit that teaches us, that empowers us to not only listen, but to see that you can do something with your word. We pray again that we would go from this place today knowing that we've been in your presence and heard your voice. In Jesus' precious name. Amen. Okay. Um, just as we 